Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Thanks for listening to Creative Control. Uh, while I have you here, please consider supporting Youth Empowerment and Support Services, otherwise known as YES. Based in Edmonton, Alberta, YES provides immediate and low-barrier overnight and day shelter, temporary supportive housing, and individualized wraparound supports for young people aged 15 to 24. They work collaboratively within a network of care focused on the prevention of youth homelessness by providing youth with the necessary supports to stabilize their housing, improve their well-being, build life skills, connect with community, and avoid re-entry into homelessness. Learn more about how to donate or otherwise support YES by visiting YESS.org. Hey, this is Nicole calling from Hamilton, and I needed to let everyone know that I really proudly support Beach and Creative Control. I have for many years, I will for many more, as long as he keeps delivering these amazing interview podcasts. When you hear one of Beach's interviews, you think he's known this guest for years, they're good friends, uh, but the truth is he approaches every interview, whether it's sort of up-and-coming indie artists or established icons or like famous intimidating comedians with Uh, a really deep, genuine curiosity, so he's never met this person, and the same really warm uh, candor, as though he's known them forever. I think it really lends to a great chat, no matter who he's talking to, and for that reason, I think you should throw Vish, like what, a dollar a month? He's got jokes. The jokes make it worth it. Support Creative Control on Patreon. To make your flexible monthly donation to Creative Control, please visit patreon.com slash creative control today. I'm Visha's wife, and remember, when you name a dog Janet or Timothy, you are dragging humanity down just a little bit. Leanne Bidasamose Simpson is an inspiring and prolific Machisa Gikanishnabek author, scholar, writer, advocate, and musician based in Peterborough, Ontario. A member of the Alderville First Nation, Simpson's album Theory of Ice was released by You've Changed Records in March 2021 and was one of 10 Canadian albums shortlisted for the Polaris Music Prize. Simpson has also authored seven critically acclaimed and essential books including the nonfiction A Short History of the Blockade and the novel Nopaming, A Cure for White Ladies, both of which we discussed when she was last on this show. On June 14, 2022, Knopf Canada published the national nonfiction bestseller Rehearsals for Living, a dialogue about parallels between black and indigenous lived experiences and perspectives framed as intimate, insightful letters exchanged by Simpson and her dear friend, the award-winning writer, Robin Maynard. Leanne and I reconnected for an in-depth conversation about things like the fluidity of language and the validity of different pronunciations of her own name, how she first encountered Robin Maynard and how the idea for Rehearsals for a Living evolved, parenting and pedagogy, the fact that there seemed to be a lot more coups or attempted coups these days, and what that might mean, generally. 
Canada's attempts to whitewash its role in the oppression of Indigenous and Black people, our shared experiences with and love for the retired University of Guelph Black history professor Dr. Clarence J. Munford, true abolition and hope, future plans, and much more. A part of the Entertainment One Network with the support of listeners like you who follow and subscribe to this podcast and spread the word about it and make flexible monthly donations at patreon.com slash creative control, which is the primary source of revenue for all the work that goes into making this podcast. Again, you can learn more about how to financially support this show at patreon.com slash creative control. Plus in-kind support from Pizza Trocadero, The Bookshelf, and Planet Bean Coffee, respectively, in Guelph, Ontario, and Granddad's Donuts in Hamilton, Ontario. This is episode 742 of Creative Control, featuring the brilliant and kind Leanne Bidasamose Simpson with your host, me, Vish Khanna. Hi, Leanne. How's it going? Hi, Vish. It's going well. How are you doing? I'm well, thank you. I'm very well. Where in the world are you today? I'm in Peterborough, Ontario today. Ah, very nice. This is your long-time home. How long have you been in Peterborough? This is my long-time home. I've been here since, I think, about 2000. Wow. So, yeah, over 20 years. I can't recall. Have you spent considerable amounts of time living elsewhere? I know you travel a lot, but have you lived anywhere else since you settled in Peterborough? Um, not since I've settled in Peterborough. I spend I spend a lot of time in Yellowknife, um, mm-hmm. so that that would be sort of the next place that I land quite a bit. But I moved quite a bit through my twenties. But I've since I've settled, I've been I've been here. Nice. Nice. And what is the vibe in Peterborough for you today? I know you're a busy person. Uh, what, <laughs> what's the, oh, as we're speaking, I, I was just speaking to my father, uh, early this morning and he suggested he's in Ontario, uh, far away from you in a sense. He's from, uh, he was in, uh, he is in Cambridge, Ontario. He said there's a big ice storm or something. Is that right? That is the vibe of Ontario this morning. There's mm. a big storm coming. Um, it's like we're looking. I'm looking on my phone. It's going to start snowing in the afternoon, and yeah, twenty centimeters for us. So, and that's a big area. It's going to be yeah. So that's exciting. <laughs> that's the big. That's the <laughs> that's first the vibe. First big snowstorm of the year, 2022. Is that right? Um, we've had a couple of. We have snow on the ground now, and we've had a couple of you know 10 centimeters but i think this is the this is probably there's a lot of there's a lot of hype with this one yes yes i've heard about it a lot e- of build up. even here in edmonton i've heard about it but beyond talking to my father i saw on the social media and where people saying they're batting down the hatches and all that sort of stuff all right well that's are you able to hunker down are you able to stay in yeah, I've, I've just got a lot of Zooms, so unfortunately the weather isn't... I'm not going to get a snow day. <laughs> yeah, that's the other weird part of this uh, time uh, since the pandemic where we learned that some of us could do... Those who are so privileged, so, so privileged, can do some of their work from their homes. Uh, but uh, that's you don't get the sick days anymore, the snow days. People are bending that, you know. Well, I'm home anyway. I, I can probably do that little bit of work, even though I'm feeling a little run down. Have you have you done that? Have you encountered that in your work? People just working through things they would normally be like, yeah, no, I'm I'm taking the day off. Yeah, there's certainly there's certainly that pressure. I just remember like my best memories of of uh, being a kid is like listening to the radio at. 7:45 and finding out that school was canceled for the day because it was a snow day. Yeah. Like the joy and I feel like I feel badly for for kids now where it just means that they're they're online. Yeah, it's yeah. I don't I like the virtual parts in some ways because you can get things done. We've proven that. But yes, there's no boundaries if you will. Uh and that's maybe on us. I try to have personal boundaries and say, yeah, no, I'm not doing this now. This is my time with my family or this or that. But it's, uh, 
anyway, it's hard. We're I'm I'm just happy you're back on the show and we get to talk about uh, this momentous book uh, that you wrote with uh, Robin Maynard. So we'll we'll get into that in a moment. One uh, quick bit of business. Um, since we've last spoken, I've encountered uh, you doing uh, where where it came to my attention actually the most was when you were. Uh, nominated for the Polaris Music Prize. Uh, by the way, belated congratulations on that nomination mm. for what it's worth. Thank you. <laughs> yes, but I heard you actually identify yourself and pronounce your name in a way that I hadn't heard it pronounced before because you've, as as I mentioned, we've spoken many times. I always ask you, I've always asked you how to sort of pronounce uh, your full name. Something has, uh, I, in my view anyway, something had changed about the pronunciation Am I wrong about this? Was I wrong this whole time? Can you explain what's going on uh, in terms of how you're saying your full name these days? Yeah, so I i don't think anyone has ever asked me this. And so I feel like I'm just going to tell the whole story. So sure. I was when I was living in Winnipeg, I didn't have uh, an Anishinaabe name. And I was working with an elder from Shoal Lake named Robin Green, who has now passed on. And he gave me this name in a in a sweat lodge, and he had a vision uh, in the naming ceremony of a woman walking towards the earth from the moon, mm. and that's culturally significant um, because the moon is something that that takes care of of women and children and and two spirit folks, and so he wrote down um, the way that that folks see it spelled on this yellow sticky note, which I still have, and he gave it to me. And it was sort of his phonetic pronunciation of the word. And so Bitasmusak was how I was pronouncing it. And I am a horrible, horrible, horrible language speaker. I've taken lessons for years. I've had tutors. It doesn't, I'm just, I'm not good at it. And then when I moved back home, I would be saying this name and um, elders here were like, what, like, what is, like, I, we, they didn't understand. And so over the years, I sort of kept to that pronunciation. It's a different dialect where I live in the East. So there's, we, we speak differently. We drop a lot of syllables. And then I'm a bad pronouncer of Anishinaabemowin. And I eventually just um, did a recording of Doug Williams, who's the elder that I worked with, who has also passed away. And he, he, he said it in our dialect, and it was Bidasmuse. And so both are correct, and both are fine. And um, I think now, as I'm getting older, every time I look at the word, I think of that sticky note that Robin Green wrote on it. And every time I say Bidasmuse, I think of sitting in the truck with with Doug with my iPhone being like I keep pronouncing this wrong you got to teach me this <laughs> so <laughs> there are two sort of really cherished memories that I have and uh yeah that's the that's the story of my my name I appreciate this very much and I thank you for it I will tell you that selfishly and self-consciously I was like oh no I have been saying it wrong even though then I was like, wait a minute, but I always ask Leanne how to pronounce it, and that's what she told me, and then I heard this different pronunciation. You self-effacingly describe yourself as a terrible pronounce, pronouncer, I suppose is the word, but you also hit upon something that I've come across a few times. There are different and distinctive dialectical pronunciations uh, in a lot of languages, uh, actually, but uh, that's something we should consider, I think. Uh, I've had these conversations with uh, people like uh, the folks in the band, uh, and see, I might say this incorrect, so to speak, but Ombegize, uh, and they, they mm-hmm. suggested, yeah, no, there's, we don't even know. Like, we're, we're still learning. We have, we have been put in this very horrible position where our language and our culture has been erased to such an extent that we're trying to learn it. Um, and we're feeling self-conscious that we're stumbling, but at the same time being told by elders, it's okay. These things are somewhat fluid. So in any case, so what I'm getting at is that's what you're hitting upon too. Like there can be multiple pronunciations for the same word. And that's what you're discovering as you delve into your culture. Yeah, there's there's lots of diversity in the way things are pronounced because Anishinaabe people were spread out on the land. And Doug used to talk about how um, different families 
had different different ways of of speaking mm. because they of course they were spending long periods of time more isolated more socially distanced he used to talk about how families from alderville which is the place that i'm a, a status indian and a band member of used to sing the language and so there's a lot of diversity there's also i also am not good at at pronouncing and the language and i this came to a fore during the pandemic when i was my mom and my two sisters Ansley and Shannon and my daughter, Minaway, and I were all taking online language classes um, at Alderville, but on Zoom with our teacher, Melody Crow. Mm. And so we were, my daughter is a, a teenager and I've done lots of language work in the community with her as part of a, a language nest. So she grew up hearing it to a greater degree than I did. And and then taking these language classes, I would be like thinking I was doing a great job. And she would be like, she would be texting me, mom, like you have the worst English <laughs> accent. Like try and listen to the teacher. I'm so embarrassed. Oh. I'm so embarrassed. So I'm like, uh, yeah. okay, I'm not as, uh, not as good as I think. I well, am. I mean, it's, so it's humble. it was a beautiful, it was a beautiful kind of thing to be having the zoom language. It was a, it was a great pandemic kind of memory to be online with my mom, like have three generations of people trying to learn the language. And you could hear through the generations, Minoue actually sounds the best out of all of us. So that was a, that's a beautiful thing. There's a license to make mistakes in the process of learning things, wouldn't you say? I mean, isn't that something we should accept? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. For sure, especially with language learning when the there's like a there's a lot of violence that uh people, families, elders have gone through um in terms of residential schools and the Indian Act. And so I think that creating these kind of nurturing environments where it's fine to make mistakes and it's really, really important to try and do your best is is really important as well. I wonder if that's at least a subtextual aspect of your pedagogical approach overall. Um, because I feel like if I think of, if I generalize about the work you've done and been doing for all these years, and I encounter this in my day job all the time where People, when you try to educate certain people about topics that are potentially uh, sensitive to them or sensitive in general or that make them uncomfortable, their knee-jerk reaction can be to lash out at the person educating them, to lash out because I think they feel guilt and I think they feel self-conscious that they don't know things or they didn't know the plight of someone. And Mm -hmm. certainly cultural differences... Um, when they're pointed out, uh, can be an inflammatory thing depending on how you're coming to it. Like, I don't know what I'm getting at right now, but you invoked your, your daughter there. And I, when I think of this beautiful new book, Rehearsals for Living, it definitely seems to have a pedagogical aspect, an educational aspect. And I can see some people accepting this for what it is, but I can also see some people uh, not ignore it, but but or not denigrate it. Even I'm not sure what the word I'm looking for. But you know where I'm coming from. This there is an impulse to sort of feel badly without just processing the information and the facts for what they are. Um, have you? Do you know where I'm coming from? There have you encountered that as you've taught and and tried to impart wisdom to people who may not be ready for it, if you will. You know, I think as you were talking, I thought the first thing I thought of was parenting, and I. Th- think I thought of like all the, the kinds of things as a parent you want to teach your children and how oftentimes you get that immediate backlash yeah when you're especially when you're my, my kids are like when they were little they were like that's her teacher voice and so I hmm. think um, in thinking about parenting I figured out kind of ways where you set up situations you set up learning situations where they don't know they're learning where there's just a lot of joy and there's a lot of laughter and they're discovering and they have kind of some self-determination, but they're still at the end of the day kind of coming to the thing that you wanted them to figure out, but they've, they've explored it and it's, they've made it their own. And that side of pedagogy, I think, made parenting a lot more fun for our family. Yeah. But also then I was like, you know what, when, when you set up situations and people kind of, find the information on their own that can be a that can be a powerful um, pedagogical kind of intervention yeah absolutely yeah I think there there's just this thing floating in the air as people learn things that I think people want to feel like they're more informed than they are and when they discover they're not 
Uh, when someone says, well, no, the real history is this, or the real information is this, they have this knee-jerk reaction that their intelligence is being attacked. So anyway, I feel like that's floating around in the air quite a bit in this, particularly in this pandemic era, which has been very fractured and overly politicized and all the buzzwords I can think of right now. But I, I when I see the anger, I feel like it's people who are both, they feel like they've been made to feel ignorant, but I also think they're afraid of the things they don't know. Does that make sense? I'm thinking just about myself here and I'm thinking um, there's sometimes like issues come up in the world. Like example from this week is, is Peru and there's all these protests going on in Peru. And I'm like, I feel like I've let this slide. Like I, I don't, I I need to spend some time and sort through what's happening here. And so I feel like if you care about what's going on in the world, I think you kind of have to every day get up and engage in this, sort of education process, particularly if you're you're coming from kind of an anti-colonial perspective or a perspective that you might not get in the the mainstream media. And so I like I learned that I think that there's a part in rehearsals for living where Robin talks about getting up every morning and kind of re-educating yourself. And that's I think such a powerful practice because when I'm constantly doing that and I encounter folks that have, you know, gone through the Canadian school system have degrees from universities and and don't know the first thing about whose territory they're living in or or anything about about my people and i i find that a lot of times that group of of folks is encountering my work not through books but through music i i know also what that feels like and i also know what that feels like to as a practice kind of commit to working through that and always making my world bigger instead of yeah. smaller you know, one of the interesting aspects of this particular time is that people have become so outspoken that they're leaning on revolution. I mean, depending on your political stripe and and how you feel about how certain things have been in, uh, implemented, there's a lot of like coups in the air, regime change uh, beyond the democratic way of going about things, elections and whatnot. That seems to be more in the air these days. And I'm not suggesting, well, there's revolution in this book of yours too. Do you have a, like I say, I think this is happening, whether you lean right or left, depending on who's in power, there's just this feeling that whatever has been going on isn't working. It needs to change. And people are trying to mobilize. Literally, I'm not even, this is not... I don't know, 10 years ago, if I was like, there's coups all the time, uh, we would be like, what are you talking about? But I mean, every time, every week, there's some country, it seems to me, some nation is in, or nation state or whatever, they're enduring this. And, and it's very telling, I think, of how unhappy people are. Anyway, yeah. And like I say, I think that's a thread in this book, like think in your, your new book, things need to change in a very, what some would call radical way. Does that resonate with you? Like this feeling that everything needs to change and be different is really hitting home. I don't know if this is a pandemic era realization or what. What do you think? Well, I think that um, there's been this intensification of of fascism. I, I yeah. On the weekend in Peterborough, there was a, a demonstration of, of 400 people the same group of people that were sort of protesting the mandates and that were involved in the trucker convoy, um, the fuck Trudeau sort of people gathered. And that was like a, I hadn't thought of the truckers convoy for a while, right? We're coming up on sort of the year anniversary. So I think there's been this tremendous sort of lots of, lots of fascism in the U S and in Canada and in, in Europe kind of resurgence of that. There's also been, um, I think during the pandemic, as a result of the the murder of George Floyd and hundreds of years of organizing, um, this kind of black summer of black revolt that we talk about in the in the book. I think yeah. if we look more globally, while there's sort of this intensification of, of fascism in Europe and North America, there's also all these kinds of leftist governments and. Um, happening in in the global south and then i think we've got you know this um 
labor. I've been thinking a lot about the labor movement with we've got we've had I was just in New York City, the new school was on strike. Mm -hmm. Um, The University of California system was on strike. Um, The railway workers in the US were on strike, we kind of narrowly we had a a teachers um, strike in Ontario. So I think there's yeah, Yeah. there's a lot of unrest. And there's, there's coups are in the air. (laughs) (laughs) I don't don't know how else to put it. It's also projection, the fascists calling the non-fascist fascists, like just distorting everything. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Anyway, it's just a very complicated time. um, And I think there are some solutions floating around in this book. uh, And I think we should get to it. And I want to ask you, first of all, if I haven't already, congratulations on this book, Rehearsals for Living. Uh, I hope you're very proud of it. Thank you. Yeah, it was... um it was a wonderful sort of letter writing project for Robin and I during the the early days of the pandemic. Yeah, yeah. I want to get to the actual structure in in a moment and potentially get you to uh, sort of summarize it for those who haven't yet read it. So I don't do a clumsy job of doing it. I've alluded to it a few times now, but let's first of all get to your dynamic with uh, Robin. How did you uh, first encounter Robin uh, via her work, or as uh, I, I can tell now that you're quite close as friends, but how did you first encounter Robin Maynard? I first met Robin in Montreal on Jojaga on Ganagihaga territory in maybe 2017, and her book, Policing Black Lives, um, had just come out, and I was promoting a book called As We Have Always Done, and I was doing a launch in Montreal, and whoever was organizing the launch was asked me who I kind of wanted to be in conversation with. And I immediately thought of Robin because the two books in our, our work at that time seemed to me to be very linked. Mm. And I would have written a different book had Policing Black Lives sort of come out a couple of years earlier. I would have brought the two books into conversation so we met on stage uh, in Montreal and we had this, I remember, beautiful, amazing conversation about kind of our two books. And I think that was sort of the the beginnings. That was where the seeds were planted. Hmm. And then as part of my work at the Decenta Center for Research and Learning in Yellowknife Dene territory, outside of Yellowknife in the NWT, I was working with some of my colleagues there and we were talking about having an uh, on-the-land solidarity gathering with Black and Brown and Indigenous activists. And so we brought this group in March. And so it's still very hardcore winter, like Edmonton, Yeah, yeah. <laughs> in March. Yeah. Not like It's not like Sugarbush time in Ontario. <laughs> uh, we brought this group of people up. We took them out on, on snowmobiles, out onto... Um, the big lake and we just shared food we shared stories we set uh, a fish net and fished it and and shared fish um, and just had these kind of two or three days where we were sharing our experiences and and getting to know each other but in a very Dene sort of context with with elders and with the land and we had planned sort of from that gathering to do to kind of keep expanding that work but those plans got got truncated by the pandemic and so robin i think as a way of extending some of the work that that we had started there um in the fall of 2019 wrote me that first letter Hmm. and it was I mean, it was, it's a tremendous letter. It's, um, it's the kind of letter that you can kind of sit down with a coffee one morning and respond to. I had to read things. I had to think through things. Yeah. And so it took me a while to be able to write that second letter back. And by the time I wrote the second letter back, we were into the first uh, stay-at-home order. Yeah. So I suddenly had tons of time on my hands. And at that point, this wasn't a book. This was just us trying to think through some of the uh, issues that we were encountering between um, Black and Indigenous people in Canada at that time. And it, we didn't have any intention of, of sort of of making this book. It was just this kind of pandemic came became kind of a pandemic project of, of writing back and forth and learning from each other just kind of for ourselves. I appreciate that. It, it's somewhat, I mean, it doesn't come across as happenstance. 
the the letters seem very researched. Uh, to call them letters is an interesting distinction. I know they are, uh, but that that's fascinating itself. And I want to get to the structure and and how this all came about in a moment. But you said something there about policing black lives that stuck out for me. That if 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 you had read that before you'd written your book, your book would have been different. Uh, Robin was on the show uh, to talk about that book, uh, and I read that book, and it it also uh, impacted me. But what was it exactly about Robin's book that altered you so much? You It's referenced many times in this book. You each reference each other's works and how they've impacted each of you. But can you speak to that? What was it about Robin's book in particular that uh, altered you? It's, it's a, Is that the wrong word? I feel like it did. It altered you. Is that fair? No, I think that's fair. Yeah. I think in Canada, we don't hear, um, we don't learn in school about the transatlantic slave trade. We don't learn about the afterlives of slavery. We don't mm. learn about anti-blackness no. as sort of a foundational force in the formation of the country. And so... It's quite the opposite, actually. Think, we're, we're viewed as this... Canada is viewed as a... Was, is, was viewed as a safe haven, whereas it's quite the opposite for, for uh, people fleeing America, slaves flee, fleeing America, right? We've heard, we've heard about the Underground Railroad and that makes us come across as a country superior. But as you mentioned, and I didn't mean to cut you off, uh, the historical record tells us something far different. Is that fair? Yeah, that's fair. The yeah. historical record tells us something like quite different and the black community tells us yes. something quite different. Yeah. And so there's this... You're right. Canada has this um, belief that it's exceptional and that it wasn't a participant in this. And the only time we hear about Canada in relation to uh, the transatlantic slave trade is is around the Underground Railway. So Mm -hmm. I think what policing black lives in this kind of rigorous and meticulous way is it destroys that Canadian (laughs) exceptionalism with this like volcano of evidence that's speaking otherwise and it's all in kind of this one place in this this one book and that's very powerful and so I think a lot of my work up until Policing Black Lives had been very focused on Anishinaabe things, very focused on Indigenous things mm-hmm. because I think that's where I was, that's where my community was. I needed to spend kind of 20 years learning how to to think through these things from an Anishinaabe perspective. And then while I was doing that and figuring out that, oh, like deep relationality and relationships are really important in, in Anishinaabe thought, um, land is really important in Anishinaabe thought. But then when you start to think of ecosystems, when you start to think of water, when you start to think of relationships, you can't just kind of stay in your own little corner of the world for very long because you recognize everything is related and and there's a whole system. And so my work sort of, and you can start to see that shift, I think, in as we've always done, I'm starting to look into a more international orientation. And I think that that's what policing black lives did for me. It was like, this is, this country is founded on two genocides and they're linked and they're different and the experiences are different but there's, I'm interested in how those things are linked. And I, I think that that's what Robin and I, that's a, at least one of the things I was exploring in, in Rehearsals for a Living. I think some of us have a sense memory of when we discovered something we believed is actually bullshit. Um, mm. I gather from what you're saying in terms of how policing black lives resonated with you, there's a chance it's a it was a parallel sensation or a similar sensation, I should say, to perhaps when you discovered more about Canada's history with indigenous people? I mean, on some level, on many levels, on a a whole level, that must have been a very personal uh, realization for you. Is it fair to say you had that similar sort of sensation reading Policing Black Lives? Like, oh my God, not only this is beyond cultural erasure, this is subjecting a whole history to the dustbin on purpose. Like, did you have that sort of same feeling? I think for me in sort of becoming politically aware as an indigenous person that it it happened sort of in increments over the course of kind of my life. And then eventually 
I think when you when I got maybe to university and started to be able to read um, people like Lee Miracle yeah. or Vine Deloria Jr. and start to be able to have that critique. For me, I, when I was at the University of Guelph, I was in biology, but I I took Black history courses from Clarence Munford, and it th- oh, one, those, one of my favorite. That's sorry, he was absolutely one of my favorite professors. He was my favorite professor as well. And that was actually the first time I was like, (laughs) holy shit, I don't don't know anything about anything. (laughs) That's a lie. I, I, you know... The, the books you you have in university, you retain as many of them. I, I I can't speak for everyone. I've retained as many of them as I can, but some prove to f- feel more useful than others, if you will. And when you're a poor student, uh, you <laughs> and there's an opportunity to resell them to others so they can use them. You do it, but I've kept every single one of the books that uh, Professor Munford. Uh, assigned us like white violence, black response and global rift and all these books that I, I don't know that I'll read them again necessarily. They're quite dense, but I felt like I needed to keep them. Sorry. A little aside there. I had realized funny yeah, because I've carted those books around global rift, white violence, black response and black reconstructionism by Du Bois. I've I've carted those around from Guelph to Sackville, New Brunswick, to yes. Thunder Bay, to like Winnipeg, to Peterborough. Like they're the this those are the three books that are the most Absolutely. I have every, yeah. every single one he assigned I have in a yeah. uh, I've done the same. I haven't had to cart them as far as you, but at least between Guelph and Ed well, I guess Guelph, Cambridge and Edmonton. Yes. They've they've moved yeah. with me. So I just want to say it's interesting. We encounter these figures in our lives and it may not seem consequential at the time in some ways, you know, for university students, you're signing up. So history classes were electives for me. I was in English. Um, mm. So, but I just took every single one. Yeah. He he also had a pretty remarkable and generous uh, grading system where you would do it you, if you did like a, he would do. I don't know if this was your experience, but he would give you a multiple choice exams and midterms and tests. And then you had the opportunity to increase your grade by writing a more fulsome essay uh, around mm. the subject matter. So you could yeah. get 85 percent on your exam. But if you wrote an essay, you would get like in some cases, I don't know how he got away with this, but you could get one hundred and five percent. Or something like nice. it was really interesting, but he was just trying to encourage you to engage more uh, for credit. And sorry, this is really an aside, but I, I like that we have this kinship with Professor Munford because I really valued that experience and the knowledge I had to me. Like the, the what he taught, I guess the parallel is that was a revelation for me. All of his courses were yeah. like, holy shit. Um, yeah. I did yeah. not know this. No one taught me this in high school. So, sorry, that's all I was, that's where I was coming from. Yeah, no, I think that I, I feel like this was a really, uh, this is a really beautiful creative control moment because I feel like there's, <laughs> when I got up this morning, this is not what I thought I was going to be talking about. But yeah, for me as well. And I feel like that experience was also, that changed my life. And I think that it's taken me a while to um, go back and revisit all, everything that I learned from that guy. Yeah. But that's that's also something that is a precursor, I think, to a rehearsals for living. Yeah, absolutely. So the struct, you, you say you exchange letters, and that is, uh, for some, they'll be like, letters? That's so old-timey. Were you physically writing each other letters, or were they emails? I don't mean to get uh, too in the weeds with it, but I'm just curious, because they're very... If you were to handwrite this stuff, I mean, it would be... I don't even know how, where I'm going with this, but it just seemed like it would be like a lot of work. How, what form did these letters take, uh, literally? They were emails. They were emails for sure. <laughs> okay. And, yeah, no. <laughs> they were not old. Can you, were not like, can you imagine? Note 63. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so you started an email correspondence with no sense of where it might go. I, I assume either of you might have thought, well, this could be fodder for something, but probably needs to be more formalized or did did it start to gradually feel like no this correspondence on its own this kind of dialogue because what it does i'll tell you experientially reading it is you realize this is what's missing this kind of dialogue between groups who may not realize that they are experiencing some of the same things when you talk about land usage and 
I, you know, there's a point in the book where I can't recall if it's you or Robin are just trying to draw parallels between the experience of uh, black people in North America and indigenous people in Canada and in North America, I should say. And the parallels between reservations and segregation, I couldn't help but think of projects in America Mm -hmm. where people are segregated to the point where some nefarious leadership has said, we'll just put all of you here. You fend for yourselves here and we will, we will live separately from you. All I'm getting at is, was your hope that the form of letters and exchange of ideas between people who may not realize they're leading very similar lives will encourage others to have such dialogue and find connections with groups that they may not have thought they had connections with? Yeah. So I, so Robin and I are just doing this this kind of little geek project for ourselves and for our own learning. Yeah. And we, it was not on my radar at all that this would ever, that anyone else would ever read these letters. Mm. And she goes out for a walk in the summer after we have about five or six uh, with Dion brand. And she's telling Dion's like, what are you, what are you doing? Like, what does your day look like? (laughs) Robin starts explaining these letters in this project. And Dion is like, I want to see that. Hmm. And, you know, Dion's like the best writer <laughs> yes. in the world. Yes. And so when she says she wants to see something, we're like, oh, my God. Yeah. So sure. We'll share this project with her. And she was the one that was like, this is a book. And the work that this these letters are doing is really, really important. Hmm. So without that, I don't know, we might have eventually made it into a zine or something. Or hmm. <laughs> um, I don't know that we would have ever gotten to a book. But what happened was, I think you're right. I think the work that um, kind of movements um, and people maybe need to do is that kind of work of building relationships. And there's an intimacy to building relationships. And the letters, as much as they're geeky and they're academic and there's there's footnotes and there's readings, there is a an intimacy that I think allowed us to, in a... a a way that was, I hope, filled with humility and not necessarily knowing we're sort of educating each other and thinking through together in the book that became, as we kind of toured the book and and engaged with audiences, seems to be very, something that's very important that a lot of people um, found engaging and that was almost a we were in New York, uh, Columbia last week, and, and my friend Audra Simpson was talking about how it was kind of an expression of, of indigenous diplomacy mm. and black diplomacy and how we're, we're sort of working together. So I, I mean, at one point we thought of, let's just make this an academic book and like cut out the intimacy and cut out the dear Robin and dear Leanne's and maybe it'll be taken more seriously because... Mm. Um, I, I was worried that you've got to a black woman and an indigenous woman. You know, I didn't want the book to be in the cookbook section in the recipe section. I was like, I think we're thinking, I think there's some important things happening here. Yeah. And we talked through it and we talked through it with Lynn Henry, um, who is our, our editor and Dion. And we decided to keep that, that letter writing structure. And I'm really, that was, I'm really, really glad we did. That's, because I think I didn't realize at the time the work that that forum was doing. And I think you're right. Those These are the kinds of conversations that we need to have with each other. It's very impactful and accessible in this regard because, uh, as I alluded to uh, earlier, uh, you both invoke uh, your children in, in terms of how they teach you things and you're trying to teach them things and show them videos and all sorts of things that pertain to the subject matter at hand. So it doesn't seem, sometimes in letter writing, there is intimacy. And like you said, you probably were writing thinking no one else would read them. Uh, But I gather that that approach might have evolved as you went. Because at some point, I did find myself thinking that you were speaking outwardly more the the premise is that you're speaking to each other, but this is not just for you anymore. It's for your children. It's for people like me. It's for people who uh, might gain some insight into uh, the parallels uh, of your peoples. Does that make sense? Did it, did your tone start to shift a little bit, become a little more external? I think that at the point where we decide to make this into a book, 
then we started to edit、hmm. the letters because you don't when you're just writing letters back and forth you don't、um, after you send them you don't edit them right no, like、yeah. <laughs> you move on to the next letter、yeah. and so one of the things I think that we were doing is going back and thinking about how. Different groups of people who are reading how the reader was going to experience this, and so there is one part that I that I really remember around the Indian Act, where、mm. I know Robin knows about the Indian Act, but the editors were picking up on what if you have a reader that 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 doesn't know、um, what Robin knows? Yes,、like、can you put more in there so that they have the con the same the same sort of context? So there was things like that、uh, that I think are ethically irresponsible.、Mm-hmm. In terms of thinking about like an audience or kind of readers from different cultures and from different places、um, encountering the work and what their experience is going to be. Yeah. So this phrase "rehearsals for living" I think should be、uh, homed in on. If you can help、uh, the listeners here and myself explain where that、uh, phrase comes from, and then also I will clumsily suggest it is tied to notions of abolition. That you two are discussing、uh, in this book, so yeah, the two things are: can you talk a little bit about this expression? And the second, what do you feel like you learned the most from this experience of exchanging letters、uh, with Robin? And what do you suppose those of us reading this and, and those?、Uh, this seems to me a book that will resonate throughout time.、Uh, I feel like even as you're writing to each other. There's a moment where one of you, I think it's you, Leanne, says, "Well, we were right. We were right about the pandemic. Everything we've <laughs> talked about has come to pass." And I've had these conversations with you before, where I feel like there's some a lot of prescience. Well, it's prescience, but I think I think we ignore people like you and Robin, who are quietly <laughs> writing. It's quiet because it's a book, maybe, but you do all sorts of、uh, engagements. But we, you end up being right, is where I'm coming from. And so, as much as I hear,、uh, I can see some people bristling at what your the conclusions. I think that you've both gotten to. I think you're right in terms of what abolition truly means. Anyway, I'm sorry, I've muddled this question. Can you talk a little bit about this expression, rehearsals for living? And then also what you think, what you took away from this experience, and maybe what you hope others might. Yeah. So the title comes from the work of Ruth Wilson Gilmore,、um, and I think the line in her work is "Abolition is life in rehearsals." And、yes. so we reached out to her and, and asked permission to use use the the title. It comes from this idea that I, I think in her work. That has a a kind of a broad thinking through of abolition. That if you're you're going to build societies that don't have、uh, carceral systems, that don't have prisons,、yeah. um, and you start to think through that, then you actually do have to change everything, and you have to you have to build a completely different society. And so there's sort of a visioning and a dreaming, and I think a a leveling up. Of our dreams and of our visions of a future beyond the circumstances that we're we're currently facing,、um, from an indigenous perspective, process is always really important. And when I think of how my ancestors lived, they would have got up every morning. They would have had to make everything. They were makers. They made their forms of transportation. They made their food system. They made their political system. They made their Spirituality, they made the language, they made their clothing, their housing, they made everything. They were constantly engaged in creative practices in order to build the world. They didn't rely on sort of institutions or things that are already set up. It was people coming together on the land and making things. Yeah, and that to me is a really powerful way of living in the world. And I think artists and musicians and people involved in making culture. Are sort of enacting those those practices to some degree in in society, but I think they're a really important site of knowledge generation. So every time we come together on the land or in at a at a protest or organizing, and we do something, we learn something, and we learn we generate sort of the knowledge and the theory that we need to start to dream and build these other worlds. So this idea of rehearsal. 
seemed really, I don't know, it really resonated with me. It also resonated with me as a musician because, mm. you know, when you make a record, <laughs> the thing that I do the most is rehearse. And the thing that I love the most is actually rehearsals because the audience isn't there. You try different things, you figure things out. It's a generative sort of space mm. where you're engaged in singing or saying or playing the same song over and over and over and over and over again. And for me, that kind of repetitive practice and, and even going on tour and doing the same show over and over and over and over and over again, and learning how to struggle to stay in that present moment, um, even though it's something that you've done so many times, there's something that sort of feels like it's rewiring my brain. And I, that's something that I really missed because we didn't get to play Theory of Vice because it came out during the pandemic yeah. to the degree that we got to play Flight. And um, playing those songs and getting to know them inside out is something that's generative to me as a creative practice. So I liked this. I really liked the idea of, of the rehearsal hmm. as a practice. Hmm. And it seemed like a really fitting sort of title for the book because it had this um, coming from, from abolition and Ruthie Wilson Gilmore, but then also these kind of other meanings and resonance for me as well. Well, there's a very interesting section towards the end of the book where hope is invoked and and what it means when you do the work you do and interviewers like me uh, try to ask you, well, what does this all mean? Where do you think we can go? But I also like what you're saying about the inv invocation of rehearsal because ostensibly what a rehearsal is is trying something, actually mm -hmm. trying something, not done, not doing nothing, but actually trying something to see if it works and then and refining it. So it's an interesting term for me, also coming from the arts, it's an interesting term for me to apply to the notion of abolition, because that sounds like a big thing. But it is something we can, like the ideas you both propose are things we could try. Is that a fair way of kind of assessing it? I like this idea of almost like Miriam Kaba talks about how hope is an emotion, but hope is also a practice. And I think that's kind of what you're gesturing towards when you're thinking of a rehearsal. There's there's some kind of embedded hope in a rehearsal because you're you're doing something. Yeah. You're thinking that there's gonna be a future. There's you're doing something and that's hope yeah. not necessarily as an emotion, but hope as a practice. And so yeah, yeah I think Abolition can be overwhelming. Fascism can be overwhelming. The world right now is overwhelming and yeah. you can feel paralyzed. Yeah. But I think it's important to move through that paralyzation and and think of, of and do stuff. Yeah. And yeah. struggle and fight back. And I think when you do that um, and you start to do that with people, um, I think that that's a generative process. I think that that generates new questions. It generates some answers. It generates, yeah. it's a start. And I think that's important. I like what you're saying about the possibility that reading this book or this book in itself is one antidote to that paralysis that we all see and malaise and hopelessness uh, that is floating in the air. Because it did, it did instill me with hope, with feelings of like, oh yeah, why don't we just try that? Like, why can't we just try that? Um, that seems to be a solution. And there's a, you, you both do a very good job of outlining how these kinds of approaches that you're describing could work or have worked historically. So I just want to tell you, uh, in the few minutes we have left here, I want to tell you that uh, I appreciate this book very much. I thank you uh, both for writing it. What's next for you? I know Robin's not here, so I can't ask her the same question. Uh, but what's next for you, Leanne, uh, musically, um, in terms of other work you do? Is there anything you want to talk about uh, in the time we have left? I'm sort of in that stage where I've got a few things kind of percolating. I'm trying a few things. I'm rehearsing a few things, but I don't know. I don't know yeah. what's. I don't know if they're good yet. I don't know where they're going, but I'm definitely writing. Um, I'm hoping to make a 
another record in the future. Oh, great. I'm hoping yeah. to be able to play Theory of Ice a little bit more. And um, yeah. Yeah. Okay. No, that's that's I understand where you're coming from. <laughs> that malaise and uncertainty is definitely floating in the air, and I I don't expect you to be exempt from that. Uh, I know you don't do a lot of uh, you don't have a uh, robust internet presence. Let's put it this way: if people want to learn more about you and your work, where can they go? Um, they can. I have two websites: LeanneSimpson.ca and LeanneSimpsonMusic.com, and. Uh, Two that, websites. That is that's robust. I retract yeah, what I said. On, no on. one has two websites. Good lord. Okay, sorry about that. <laughs> okay, so they can go there. I will link to things in the podcast description. Oh, anything else? Sorry, I cut you off. Anywhere else that you you live online? No, I I think that's I think that's it. It's sufficient. Two websites. Again, I I think that's great. If we can go out... And, oh, by the way, and this book, uh, Rehearsals for Living, is out via Anoff Canada, and people can go to penguinrandomhouse.ca for more info about that. Or go to your local library. Ask for them to put the book in the system there, or go to your local bookstore. Yep, yep. Go, to, okay. go support those uh, local independent bookstores for sure. Yeah. Now, uh, unusually, I have an author on the show who makes great records. Is there a song from Theory of Ice, perhaps, that we could go out on uh, right now? And if so, can you pick it and tell us why it uh, might fit uh, or resonate with this conversation? Uh, yeah, for sure. Which, which, um... <laughs> Sorry to put you on the spot. Um, breakup. Maybe breakup would be good. Breakup is not about uh, like a relationship breakup. It's about the breakup of a lake. Um, in the spring, like the breakup of the ice. Oh, yeah. So um, that's such a, like a fantastical transformation that happens um, every year. And I think we've talked a lot about these sort of transformations in this conversation. So maybe that's a good one. I agree. All right. From the album uh, Polaris Music Prize shortlisted album, Theory of Ice, uh, this is Breakup. Leanne, I always love speaking with you. I hope you enjoyed this conversation and uh, thank you for all your work and, and best of luck in the future. I hope we talk again soon. Yeah, thank you for this conversation and uh, definitely we'll talk soon. Thank you.
would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It's always such a great honor and thrill to have Leanne on this show. Uh, Thank you once again, Leanne, for being back on Creative Control. For those of you listening... This is the 742nd episode of Creative Control, which is part of the Entertainment One Podcast Network and is available wherever you get your podcasts pretty much. If you can't find an episode that you're looking for or if you want to learn more about me and sign up for my monthly newsletter, please visit vishkana.com. You can also like Creative Control on Facebook or follow the show on Twitter for now at Vish Creative or you can follow me directly on Twitter and on Instagram at vishkana. Also, please visit patreon.com slash creativecontrol to make a flexible monthly donation to sustain this podcast. $6 American or more a month grants you access to some exclusive content. You get the episodes earlier than everyone else, some bonus uh, time with some of my guests, and archival uh, audio as well from my personal archives, interviews I've done uh, that preceded this podcast, all sorts of things. And uh, also, if you're interested in receiving a Creative Control t-shirt, as uh, a nice little you know, token of, of my appreciation. Just message me on Patreon and I'll get you one while supplies last. It doesn't have to be $6 uh, American a month. It could be lower than that. It can be higher than that. And the, the beauty of it, it, it of it really is you can adjust it at any time. Higher, lower, whatever suits you. Again, learn more at patreon.com slash creative control and thanks in advance for your support. Speaking of thanks, I want to thank Pizza Trocadero, The Bookshelf, and Planet Bean Coffee in Guelph, Ontario, and Granddad's Donuts in Hamilton, Ontario for their in-kind support for this show. Thanks, as always, to my friend Jim Guthrie for letting me use some music of his on this show. You can learn more about Jim, jimguthrie.org. And finally, thank you so much for listening to this uh, chat with Leanne, and uh, I hope you will pick up the book that she wrote with uh, Robin, Rehearsals for a Living. It's a really, really essential reading, and it's so beautifully uh, put together. I, I hope we can I conveyed that as much as I could during this conversation with Leanne. Thank you for subscribing to this podcast and following it and for telling your friends about it and spreading the word. It means a lot. And that is it. I hope you're well and I will talk to you very soon. Bye for now. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row dreaming of something better well hello fresh is your guilt-free dream come true baby it's me geeky palmer let's wake up those taste buds with hot juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi mm. hello fresh stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at hellofresh.com let's get this dinner party started 
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.